Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 25. In the last episode, I continued working my way through the Philistines of the Old Testament, wrapping up when they defeated the Israelites, killing some 30,000 of their soldiers, and captured the Ark of the Covenant. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in 1 Samuel, when the Philistines took the Ark into their temple to their deity Dagon. And with that, let's get started. After capturing it from the Israelites, the Philistines took the Ark to the city of Ashdod. This is a port in the modern country of Israel, about 20 miles, 32 kilometers, south of Tel Aviv. Obviously, it was a Philistine city, and would remain so until the Egyptians destroyed it in 950 BC. In the text of 1 Samuel, we're told that the Philistines took the ark into the house of Dagon and placed it beside his idol. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, the idol had fallen on his face, on the ground in front of the ark. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, the idol had fallen again on its face before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off upon the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. After this, the priest of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon did not step on the threshold. And you may be wondering why if just his hands and head were cut off, only his trunk remained. Didn't he have legs? Well, Dagon was commonly presented as half-man, half-fish, the male version of a mermaid, a merman. And without his hands and head, he was just a fish body. Like I've said before, as part of covering the Philistines, I'll dive into more depth on him, too. And what happened to their idol Dagon was only the beginning. The narrative continues. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and struck them with tumors, both in Ashdod and in its territory. When the inhabitants of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy on us and on our God Dagon. So they sent and gathered together all the lords, so rulers, over the Philistines, maybe still the five mentioned much earlier, and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? The inhabitants of Gath replied, Let the ark of God be moved onto us. The location of Gath is less certain than that of Ashdod, with the leading candidate being Tel Ashafi. If it is this place, then it's inland from Ashdod, about 22 miles, 35 kilometers northwest of Hebron. It's on top of a hill, about 300 feet, almost 100 meters above the plain of Philistia. And since it's on top of a hill, it's easier to defend, but not from God's wrath. After they had brought it there, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. The inhabitants of the city, both young and old, were struck with tumors. These tumors broke out on them. So, they then sent the ark to Ekron. Ekron was about 18 miles north of Gath, and on the easternmost edge of the coastal plain, 
It, too, is in the modern country of Israel. And you should be seeing a pattern that as soon as the ark arrived, the people of Ekron cried out, Why have they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people? Other than that, there's no mention as to what plague or panic was brought out on the residents. They sent for and gathered all the lords of the Philistines. And I'm going to pause for a second. These five lords have been mentioned a few times, and they ruled over what's known as the Philistine Pentapolis, five cities with five rulers who together formed the Philistine Confederacy. These cities were all grouped together in southwestern Canaan and were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. So, three of these were temporary resting spots for the Ark, and one, Gaza, was where Samson killed thousands. I guess Ashkelon lucked out. The residents of Ekron told the lords to send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. But they didn't act quick enough, as before the Ark was gone, there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city, this time tumors again, and the cry of the city went up to heaven, wailing and the gnashing of teeth. That last part was my own added flourish, though it does fit. After the Ark had been in Philistia for seven months, the Philistine rulers did what polytheistic people do. They called their priest for advice. They also called in their diviners. Obviously, they needed help. The priest and the diviners told them, If you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and will be ransomed. Will not his hand then turn from you? The leaders asked what kind of guilt offering they should include. They were told to include five gold tumors and five gold mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was upon all of you and upon your lords. Wait, what? Five gold tumors and mice? Thankfully, we're told what that really meant. The priest and the diviners told the leaders they must make images of the tumors and of the mice that ravaged the land. In their words, to give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand on you and your gods and your land. And I'll pause just for a quick editorial comment. These priests seem to have believed that the God of the Israelites would lighten his hand over the people and their gods. I'm not certain that they really believed that, or were simply telling the leaders something that was easier to digest. It is a bit odd, and even odder that it's found in the text written by the prophet Samuel. The priests showed they knew some of the Israelite history, along with their religious customs, as they continued with their advice. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he made fools of them, Did they not let the people go, and they departed? Now then, get ready a new cart and two milk cows that have never borne a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go on its way, and watch. 
If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It only happened to us by chance. That's right. Tumors and mice in the three cities could have been a coincidence. Right. The leaders did as they were advised. Cows, cart, box with gold figurines. Once loaded and the cows yoked to it, the bovines went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, following a straight path and not turning to the right or left, with the lords of the Philistines going after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is a city about 19 miles, 30 kilometers west of Jerusalem. At the time, and as seen in the text, it was controlled by the Israelites, though given that it's named after the Canaanite sun goddess, it was obviously previously controlled by some other residents of Canaan. In fact, in Hebrew, its name means the temple of the sun. It was barely within the territory allotted to Judah, though close to their border with Dan. There's a lot to unpack here. The cities of the Philistines, the knowledge of the priest, and the apparent rigid border between Philistia and Israel. Of everything in here, this last one stood out. Despite their history, in the only seven months ago lost to the Philistines, the Israelites controlled their own territory, and the Philistine rulers wouldn't step foot in it. I'll get to all of this in the next few minutes, along with the next couple of episodes. When the Ark arrived back in Israelite territory, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. They looked up and saw the Ark, and went rejoicing to meet it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. At the site was a large stone. The people used the wood of the cart to build a fire and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites, so the priest, took down the Ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the gold objects, and set them upon a large stone. Then the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and presented sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron, probably very relieved that that chapter was over. The text continued for a paragraph more, recounting that the Philistines included gold replicas of the tumors and pest that God inflicted on them, one for each of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. At this point, you'd think the text would go silent on the Philistines, but they are mentioned early in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 7. Such is the role for persistent antagonist. In the beginning of the chapter, and upon the return of the ark, Samuel addresses the Israelite people, telling them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoraths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoraths and served the Lord only. At this point, the role and position of the Philistines over the Israelites is a bit confusing. In the last part of the last chapter, 
the five Philistine lords did not step foot in Israelite territory. And now Samuel is telling the people what they have to do to get themselves out from under the Philistines. Obviously, where the lines were drawn between fact and rhetorical device, between rule and influence, is subject to much interpretation. Back in the text, Samuel tells the people, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah. There are several places in the Bible that share this name, and it's thought this one was about 7 miles, 12 kilometers, north of Jerusalem. Way back in Genesis, so hundreds of years earlier, this is the place where Laban and his son-in-law Jacob made an agreement that God will watch over them while they were apart from each other. It was marked by the piling of rocks. The rock pile was a reminder of peace, where each would not go beyond these rocks to attack the other. Back in 1 Samuel, the writer and prophet tells the people that he will intercede with God on their behalf. They assemble at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. At this point, Samuel was serving as leader, maybe better termed as a judge of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered there, their five lords assembled their forces and marched to Mizpah, itching for a fight. Word spread throughout the assembled Israelites, and they became afraid. This despite having the ark back and knowing what God had just done to the Philistines. The Israelites begged of Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, and pray that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And he replied through his actions, taking a sucking lamb, so really young, to the point that it was still nursing. Samuel offered it as a burnt sacrifice. God heard his prayer and answered. Though it's not mentioned how, likely through action, given what happened next. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed by Israel. In the end, at least at the end of this battle, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, chasing the retreating Philistines, and struck them down as far as beyond Bethkar. There's no agreement as to where this Bethkar was located, so we don't really know how far the Israelites chased the Philistines. The general assumption is that it's on the way back from Mitzvah to the coast, but that's about it. What's important in the text isn't how far they were chased, but that the once subjugated Israelites were finally victorious, if only for a little while. Later in the chapter, we get a little more clarity around the issue. We're told that the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The towns that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. That's a bunch of information that I'll dive into at a later point. Time would pass on, and the Israelites moved from the loosely organized period of the judges to a united kingdom under Saul. 
All of this time, the Philistines continued to live to the west of the Israelite tribes and on the coast. As the transition from judges to king was occurring, the Philistines merited another mention. Now the day before Saul came to Samuel, God spoke to the prophet, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen the suffering of my people, because their outcry has come to me. Of course, we know how that story turns out. Saul shows up and becomes the king. As part of his anointing, Samuel tells Saul that he must go to Jibeth Elohim, where the Philistine garrison was encamped. This yet again shows how the line between Israel and the Philistines is rather blurred, and likely constantly moving. Also, that it wasn't a fortified, militarized border, and that people likely frequently crossed between the two territories. Very early in his reign, maybe within the first two years, Saul fights the Philistines. We don't know exactly when, as the Septuagint is missing information. Later text filled in the blank with two years, but to be honest, it's much less than clear. I'll dive into what all that means when I get to that book. In preparation for the fight, Saul divided his forces between those he led and those led by his son Jonathan. Jonathan defeated the Philistines he faced, but they weren't done, of course. In fact, it seemed all the Israelites had done was poke the bear one too many times. The Philistines assembled again to fight Israel, and it was no small force. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops described as being so numerous that it was like the sand on the beach, so too many to number. The Philistines encamped at Michmash, to the east of Beth-Avon. This places it to the north of Jerusalem and east of Bethel. When the Israelites saw all of the Philistines, they were greatly troubled. Parenthetically, we're told that their army would likely not be capable of defeating the numerically superior Philistines. So, what did they do? Did they pray? Did they offer sacrifices? Did they show resolve and faith? None of the above. They instead hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some crossed the Jordan River to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Before Samuel arrives, Saul gives a burnt offering. As soon as he's done, the prophet shows up and promptly admonishes him for the sacrifice, telling Saul that what he has done was foolish, that he did not keep the commandment of God, and because of this, his rule over the people will be limited in duration. Samuel then leaves, and Saul is left with his army of only 600 men. And remember that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and soldiers too numerous to count. The Philistines split their forces and sent raiding parties to different cities. Then there's a pause in the narrative that explains why the Israelites did not have iron weapons, that the Philistines kept this technology for themselves. I covered this a few episodes ago. 
Jonathan then sneaks away from his father and was only accompanied by a young man carrying his armor. The pair creeps through the rock hills to the Philistines. While on the way, he tells his armor-bearer the plan. He was going to show himself to the Philistines when at some distance. In his words, If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. That will be the sign for us. When they approached, the story unfolds. The both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. The men of the garrison held Jonathan and his armor-bearers, saying, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, with his armor-bearer following after him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer, coming after him, killed them. In that first slaughter, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed about twenty men, within an area the text says was about half a furrow long in an acre of land. That last bit, about how closely they were all spaced, is a bit of a head-scratcher in the New Revised Standard. The NIV describes it as being about half an acre, certainly clearer. In the King James, well, it describes the size as being within, as it were, with half an acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow, a context that was certainly more understandable in 17th century England, but not today. Immediately after Jonathan's exploits, there was a panic in the Philistine camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison, and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. The fear multiplied. Off in the distance, at Saul's camp, the king's lookouts noticed the chaos in the Philistines' camp. He then asked for a roll call to determine who was missing from his own. They noticed Jonathan and his valet were not there. This becomes key later in the story. Saul called for the ark, and the Philistine chaos grew. The Israelite soldiers, along with Saul, rallied and hurried to the battlefield. The fight is described as every sword was against the other, so that there was very great confusion. Then, a force multiplier. The Hebrews, who previously had been with the Philistines, and had gone up with them into the camp, defected and joined the Israelites. Likewise, when all the Israelites who had gone into hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too showed up at the battlefield. And with that, the Israelites defeated the Philistines. Though, that wasn't the end of the story, as it wraps up with a mistake Saul made that seemingly spoiled the victory. This is becoming far too frequent. The text describes what he did as a very rash act. He took an oath for all of his troops, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before it is evening, and I have been avenged on my enemies. So, none of the troops ate that day. This is despite all of the troops happening upon a honeycomb, 
a comb so full that honey was dripping out of it. But they didn't eat due to the king's oath, except for Jonathan, who was unaware what his father had sworn on behalf of everyone. When Jonathan finds out, he's critical of Saul, the king, his dad, saying that this oath has spoiled the victory over the Philistines. But the troubles weren't over. After the fighting, the troops were weak and hungry, so hungry that they slaughtered sheep, oxen, and calves, then ate them with the blood still present. Then this was reported to Saul as the troops sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Saul attempts to correct the situation by building an altar to God. After this, the battle wrapped up with the Israelites and the Philistines heading back to their homes. Overall, it would seem that the Israelites had won the day, but they had not finally completely defeated the Philistines. What happens next? Well, that will have to wait until next week, as I'm out of time. Join me then, when I'll continue with the history of the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.